You're listening to the Gratefully Nourished Podcast, a podcast about healing your relationship with food and body image with Jesus at the center. I'm your host and registered dietitian, Alyssa Pike. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Gratefully Nourished podcast. Today, I'm joined by Brittany Braswell, who is a wife, mama of two, registered dietitian and recovery coach on a mission to help women struggling with disordered eating and negative body image experience the peace that comes when you ditch food rolls for good. She uses a Christ-centered approach to help her clients overcome the lies they've been fed by diet culture and replace them with spiritual truth to rediscover their God-given identity. Brittany, I'm super excited to have you on the podcast and to get to talk to you a little bit more. And can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Yeah, thank you so much, Alyssa, for having me. I'm really excited about our conversation today. And um, yeah, just for you guys to get to know me a little bit, I am a Southern girl. I'm from Alabama, um, which means naturally I love SEC football and (laughs) Braves baseball and all those good things. but yeah, like like you said, Alyssa, I am I'm a dietitian by you know education and trade. I'm I'm specialized in the treatment of um, disordered disordered eating, body image, eating disorders, kind of all in that realm. Um, but I primarily operate as um, a recovery coach, um, and I really run a virtual Christ centered private practice. So, kind of what that means or what that looks like is. Um, the women that I primarily work with, um, usually I work with women college age and up and they come to me. Some of them have diagnosed eating disorders. Um, some of them have just various behaviors that kind of fall, you know, within the disordered eating realm. And most of them have some struggles with body image and they relate a lot of their worth or value or identity. It's, it's often all wrapped up in their body. Um, maybe it's their weight or their shape or even their health. And so something that I really love to do and really focus on in my practice is how do we work on, you know, reducing some of those disordered behaviors, seeing your body in a more positive light? Um, and how do we all do that with Christ at the the center of things? Because um, that's probably a conversation we could probably expand, expand that in lots of different directions. Um, but I have found that to absolutely be the most effective and rewarding process for my clients to make sure that we include that Um like just keeping Christ at the center of everything so much, so much more effective than when you don't. So, so yeah, that's a little bit about what I do and and kind of how I work with my amazing clients and students. Yeah, that is so cool. I honestly, I feel like I'm looking in the mirror a little bit <laughs> as I'm listening to you talk. Cause I'm like, yep, check like all of those things. That's kind of, um, exactly how I feel. So I think that's really fun. Um, can you tell me a little bit about, like, why do you think it's so important to have Christ at the center of this process? And and maybe that includes a little bit of your story of of how you, if you struggled with a, with an unhealthy relationship with food, what did that look like? Oh, yeah. So that's that's probably a good place to start. Um, I would say my my relationship with food was very healthy growing up. Um, I had a very you know neutral to positive, I guess, um, body image. There were a lot of diet products and fads that happened in my house growing up. I remember, um, I won't name names, but, you know, I'm a 
technically born in the 80s, but grew up kind of in the 90s. And there were all kinds of crazy diet fads going around then that made their way into um, my house that mom or dad or both might have you know, gone through at some point. So I was very aware um, of diet culture early on, but you know, didn't have a name for it then. And so I knew, I guess, fast forwarding a little bit, I knew I wanted to be a healthcare professional. I didn't think I wanted to be in the field of nutrition. Um, I really started off with this desire to be a pediatric surgeon after one of my best friends had, um, we were out horseback riding and she had fallen off her horse and taken a spill and, um, broke her arm. So I was like, you know, I want to be that doctor that, that fixes her arm. Um, but as I got into you know high school and especially in college, I got more and more interested in the nutrition side of things, and I, I saw it as such like a a preemptive, um, I guess, sort of thing. Like, hey, if I can teach people to eat a certain way or um, help them to eat, you know, quote unquote healthy, then that'll prevent a lot of the issues, you know, for for people even needing to go to the hospital, um, mm-hmm. obviously outside of a broken bone, um, mm-hmm. although there's definitely some nutritional implications there too. But so, so I ended up changing my major from um, kind of like the like biomedical sciences, which is like your, you know, sort of prereq for med school into nutrition. And I just found that I was really fascinated by anatomy and physiology. And I was like, you know, nutritional biochem, I'm like the nerd, you know, that loves to study and I love the science and metabolism. <laughs> and so my, my clients appreciate that, I think, because I, I like to take all the complicated, you know, metabolic side of things and make it really simple to understand and, and implement. But it was really in that stage of life and in, in undergrad where, you know, probably by no intentional fault of their own, but, you know, there were some professors I had that I, I guess I kind of took their um, labels, you know, of these are good foods, these are bad foods, these are healthy, these are unhealthy. Um, and so I felt like, you know, the more and more I learned with some of, you know, being in certain classes that, okay, well now I need to be more in control of certain aspects of mm-hmm. food or of health or, you know, in the sake of, um, you know, for the sake of my future patients or clients, you know, we've got to, we've got to really control a lot of things. Um And I know that's, that's a familiar theme that I don't know that I've ever worked with any client, regardless of their age, um, who has not struggled with control in some way. And, Mm -hmm. um, so that eventually led in grad school. Um, I almost even hate to admit this, but I, I helped to develop, I was asked to help develop a class for healthcare, future healthcare professionals. So I was, I had gotten my nutrition degree at this point. I had already finished my internship to become a dietitian. And one of the professors said, I would really like to develop a class um, for clinical practitioners for obesity management. And of course, at that point, I'm like, oh yeah, absolutely. I would love to help you, you know, do this course and um, ended up actually being the person who taught the class because the professor who wanted to do the course was like, this is actually more than I have capacity to teach right now. Why don't you go teach it? Mm-hmm. So, um, so that was a very interesting experience for me because as I have developed and am teaching this graduate level nutrition course, I'm also simultaneously enrolled in an eating disorder treatment course. Um, and, and praise God, the Lord just, just, orchestrated that so perfectly. Um, and it was in the time that I was in that class that I really just realized, oh my goodness, what am I doing? Um, not only do I have all of these control issues around food, but 
now I'm like teaching these other healthcare providers um, or future ones, you know, to do this. And I don't want this to impact their clients or mine. And so um, I very quickly, I think the Lord just like, I had this eye opening moment, like come to Jesus moment at one time and realize like, this is the, this is the path that I'm, I'm meant to go. Um, and so I really switched my focus to learning more about my relationship with food, learning about eating disorder treatment. And it has really just become a ministry opportunity for me. Um, it is something that I feel like I've got the nutritional background, but now I also know how to educate and use language that doesn't cultivate fear around food or mm -hmm. shame around your body, but that can really lead to improved health, not just physically, but also mentally and spiritually in the process. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate you sharing that. It It's so interesting how these different um, influences are just like woven throughout kind of our culture. Like it's interesting to me that you didn't necessarily have an unhealthy relationship with food or view of food when you were young, but it really sounds like it happened more when you started going to school for it, which is not, it's not great to hear. Right. I mean, it's it's right. common. It's, it's really common, I think. Um, but I mean, is that right? Am I, am I hearing yeah. that? What was? Yeah, absolutely. And, and you hear those like, at the time, you, you know, as a freshman, you always hear that, oh, well, you better watch out for that freshman 15 or you better watch yeah. out for college changes, everything. And, you know, at that point, I was like, you know, because I had not had any sort of disordered really relationship with food at that point, you know, my my eating habits, my movement didn't really change in college. You know, I didn't like all of a sudden go, hey, I'm out of the house now. Um, my parents aren't here to monitor what I eat or tell me I should or shouldn't do anything. And so, you know, it was my relationship with food didn't, wasn't really impacted other than the fact that I was, you know, living in a dorm and didn't have access to a full kitchen. Mm -hmm. um, so there's always changes there, but, but yeah, it really wasn't until I started going gung ho on, let me learn nutrition. And it very quickly turned mm -hmm. into diet culture. Yeah. Which is really unfortunate because I don't think that's the intention. And it's so tricky, I think. And and I wonder, I mean, I don't know, we don't have to <laughs> dive down and try to figure out why this is. I mean, obviously there is some some weight stigma woven into kind of right. nutrition education. But I also mm -hmm. think equally influential is just the kind of the types of people who tend to be interested in nutrition, like people who tend to have more type A personalities or perfectionistic mm -hmm. personalities. And so, you know, you're given this information that is meant to be kept, I think, in its right place. Um, but we will <laughs> go to the extreme of like, oh, well, this is how I prevent disease. And this is, you know, how I should be eating. And I don't know, it just, it just becomes this, this nice storm of opportunity for it to be taken out of context and to be elevated to a level that it, it's not meant to be. And when I say it, I mean our relationship with food and just the potential um, power of our nutrition choices. Yes. So, Gosh, Alyssa. Yeah. You're speaking my language right now. I feel, <laughs> like, I have, I feel like I have a, a conversations on a, on a daily, you know, weekly basis that revolve around that and how, 
much of a difference it makes when you just shift your language a little bit to, you know, rather than talking about certain foods, like demonizing certain foods for their qualities, really there's, I think there's a fine line sometimes between, you know, implementing the principle of general nutrition and then letting Mm -hmm. it really bleed into diet culture. So yeah, Mm -hmm. I think there's huge, um, potential, I guess, especially in, in in any kind of undergraduate or graduate level college classes, or even like introduction to nutrition. I know that was one that so many went through when I was in school that Mm -hmm. just a little bit of a shift of language can really help the understanding of how, how can we nourish our bodies in a way that makes us feel great, you know, physically and mentally that doesn't leave us feeling deprived or shameful when, you know, when we include you know, some fun foods along with that. Yeah. So I'm curious what sparked your interest in wanting to get into the eating disorder field, because it sounds like you had every reason kind of not to, like you had different opportunities (laughs) presented to you. Yeah. Where did that come from? Yeah. um, So while I was in those graduate, um, that graduate eating disorder course, um, previously when I when I came, I went to Texas Tech for my my graduate degree, and at the time, I thought, "Oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna focus on sports nutrition, and um, I'm gonna really like work with athletes who already want to feel their bodies well and do all these, you know, quote unquote healthy things." Um, and it was during that time leading up to, you know, kind of that switch into the eating disorder focus that again, the Lord was just like. I sort of felt like a David preparing for Goliath, right? Like everybody hears the David and Goliath story and you think, mm-hmm. oh, you know, he, you've got this, this young boy and he all of a sudden slays this giant. But unless you read the scriptures leading up to it, you know, you're, you're able to see that, you know, David fights off lions and bears and he's doing all this stuff to protect the sheep, you know, that's, that's helping to equip him. Mm-hmm. And the Lord is showing him like, Hey, this look what's possible. And so for me, my sort of, Goliath moment was like, okay, I got to go into eating disorder, um, in the eating disorder field. But prior to that, I was, you know, focusing so much around sports nutrition and the Lord was saying, look how prevalent this kind of struggle is among athletes. Mm-hmm. Um, cause mm-hmm. I was focusing all the work that I could around what, what project, what paper, you know, can I do to, to study, you know, get further into the sports nutrition field and just over and over again. Um, I worked with some of the the athletic teams while I was at Texas Tech and I was studying and I just saw such a prevalence of, um, I mean, even from even from staff, like coaching staff or athletic mm-hmm. training staff, just the language that they would use. And I would see the players going like, like just feeling so much shame on I'm not doing well enough or I should be eating differently or I'm not performing my best and it's being blamed on the food or lack thereof. Um, and so... I think that was really what started sparking my interest in going, okay, what, what is this? Um, yeah. What is going on? And started again, kind of uncovering some of my own beliefs around food and how, how I had been talking about it and started giving me an opportunity to learn and, and practice shifting my own language for, for my sake, but also for the sake of the athletes that I was working with. So I think that was my sort of lead up moment. And then the Lord going, okay, here's this, opportunity now for you to really dive into this, get yeah. your focus off of, off of yourself and what your plans were and really start, you know, surrendering that to me instead. Yeah. That's so cool. I feel like it takes a lot of awareness, but also courage to be like, 
okay, here's a different, <laughs> a different path that I yeah. wasn't planning on going down. So I think that's really cool. And I guess my next question by extension is like, when did you begin integrating your relationship with Christ into this recovery process? Because I know for me, I had, I had the same, it sounds like we had similar experiences (laughs) because I started working at an eating disorder outpatient center. And that was my first job out of my internship. And I had no idea what I was doing. And I was learning so much on the go. And I remember after several months, just getting to this place where I was like, okay, but this is really about identity. And so mm-hmm. yeah, if we don't have our identity in Christ, we may get to a place of recovery, but there's always the temptation for our identity to just be in something else, which is not necessarily going to lead us to that place of freedom. And so yes. yeah, I'm curious what it was like for you and how, how that happened. Yeah. So um, my my first, I guess, I'll say like deep dive, I guess, into this area was really, I, I was working um, for a little over three years. Um, I was working at a treatment center for, um, for women 18 and up struggling with eating disorders. And so um, I found that during that time that I had several, several clients that were there that really you know, they were a lot more open to talking about their faith and they would kind of bring things up. Um, they all knew that I was a Christian, but this was not mm-hmm. a, a Christian treatment facility, you know, that wasn't mm-hmm. discouraged, but it wasn't geared around that. And so, um, for those clients who wanted to discuss their faith and a lot of them, unfortunately had a lot of trauma, um, when it came to, to faith or when it came to relationships with other people that maybe they had a very, um, traumatic relationship with, you know, with their father, with a father figure in their life. And that kind of, it really was something that um, impacted their relationship with the heavenly father and feeling like, you know, they didn't really know what it's like to have a heavenly father who loves you and you're, you know, maybe their identity was very highly affected, you know, growing up with that relationship or or other similar ones. And so I, I just really loved um, being able to really help them walk in that relationship with cultivating not just a better relationship with food or their body, but also with the father and helping them to see, just like you said, um, that, you know, your identity, we've got to separate that. And so um, something that I always tell my clients now that I have my own practice and it is, you know, very much Christ-centered is that in order to fully separate your identity from your body weight or shape or size or even health, um, without falling back into other disordered behaviors, because that can be so easy. You can, you can say, okay, well, if I'm finding my identity, my identity in this thing right now, and someone says it's not good for me, well, let me just switch. I'm going to find my identity in something else right now. It's going to be in my career or now it's going to be as a mom or as a wife or as a whatever. Um, and so you've got to separate your identity from your, your body, but you don't want to put it on something else that's not going to be helpful either. And so you've got to find your identity. This is what I tell my clients and something unshakable, right? And without Jesus, you'll never find that solid foundation. Everything else shifts. Um, I, I have, <laughs> when my clients ask me about this or, or when I'm, you know, speaking to other women or students and they're like, well, you know, what's, what is unshakable? Like what's, 
how do I know what that is? I said, well, you know, think about things in your life and people. What can you think of anything that is never going to change? And I I, I haven't come up with anything yet other than Jesus, right? (laughs) And so Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and, and forever. And when you have that solid foundation and you know, you know, it's not, I don't even have the power or authority to change my identity. That only lies with the Lord. And so it feels, it can feel really difficult initially maybe to give that up and to say like, okay, well, my identity is really not even in my control anymore. But there's also so much peace in that, Alyssa, because when you know that Jesus has it, you know that it can't change. And that gives you the permission and freedom to be imperfect and to say, mm-hmm. I can I can accept grace, right? And it doesn't matter what I think of myself and how, how you know, quote unquote, bad I feel like I've done, um, you know, that doesn't change who I am and, and I'm still loved because of it. So I love being able to integrate that relationship with Christ into the recovery process because it really, you know, pours, bleeds into every, every area when you let it. Yeah. And I think sometimes for my clients and even for myself, it's like cognitively they get that, but it's really hard for it to travel down to their heart, you know? And I, I think mm-hmm. it's, it's one of those things where I, I really don't have, <laughs> I don't have a formula. I don't have a, a way that, that, that happens every single time, but it's in my experience, it's about taking that time to kind of slow yourself and meditate on his word. And, you know, I don't know, there's, there's so many different ways, I suppose, that you could try to practice almost having your identity mm-hmm. in Christ. Does that make sense? It's just yeah. it's hard, I think, because so many people I think want that and they believe that, but it's hard it's hard to always feel like that's true. And I think maybe mm-hmm. that's just the ongoing part of of our relationship with God. It's just learning how to depend on him and learning how to just allow ourselves to be needy in front of him and need that identity in Christ. Oh, yes. I love, I love the way you worded that. Um, yeah, that's, I think the identity piece of things is something I tend to spend a lot of time on with my clients, with my, my one-to-one and my group clients, because I think, um, something that can be really helpful just as a strategy, like if you're listening and you know that you really struggle with that kind of like head to heart that you just mentioned, Alyssa, Mm -hmm. um, I really like to separate identity into, or, or like looking at how you identify yourself in, in a couple of different ways. I think it's really important. Number one, um, to look at who do you think you are? Like who, like, how do you currently perceive yourself? If you were just going to even like write down or describe your identity, like what are some of the different words that come to mind? Um, and then I think it's, it can be helpful. It can be really difficult. And for some people, this might be triggering. So this is why I like to kind of do this with my clients, but, um, who do you think, like, like, what is your perceived identity from other people? Like how, how does your perception of how other people see you impact the way that you see yourself? Um, Mm -hmm. and how's the, how's the enemy involved in that? Like, what is, what is the enemy trying to make you believe about yourself? And then kind of once you, you can sort of see those things and see, are these similar or are these different? Then you add on that layer of now, how does Christ see me? Um, and when you can compare most of the time, those, 
those are drastically different between, okay, what does scripture say about who I am and how do, you know, how am I currently seeing that? Or what do I think other people perceive? Um, And I think that's the starting point. Um, You know, I I spend a lot of time, like I said, with my clients going through it, but I think that's a good starting point to go, let me just figure out what, what are the differences here? And, and when you can, if you believe that scripture is true, then you've also got to remind yourself if it's, if it's true, even if part of it's true, Mm. then all of it's true. And that, you know, I'm not the exception because it's so easy to go, okay, well that might be true for them or no, I would never speak to, you know, my sister or my friend or my daughter, you know, the way that I speak, I would never speak to them about their body the way I talk about my body. Right. And so being able to say, are there areas where I'm really making myself the exception and why? And when you can really start digging into that why, um, I think that can really help you from that identity standpoint to go, okay, well, where where is this coming from or where has this been coming from? Yeah, that's really good because it is, I think so much, and, and you've touched upon this already, but so much of this process is understanding where did I get these ideas about what I think about myself and my body and food? And are they actually what God thinks? And so that's a really hard process because it requires a lot of self-awareness to be like, hmm, where did I get this idea that <laughs> yes. you know, being smaller is better or whatever it is? And the other, the added layer of complexity is just that it's so truly hard <laughs> to navigate nutrition, body, health, information in our world because there's so much of it. And I mean, it's just hard. So this kind of leads nicely into my other question that I was going to ask you, which is what do you think is the hardest part of healing your relationship with food or recovering from an eating disorder? And you probably have lots of thoughts. So we can just go (laughs) go through each of them because the whole process is hard, but what are some of the harder pieces that we have to work through? Alyssa, I would say from, I feel like I have, again, this, this conversation or I, or I hear this conversation from my clients so often. And for so many of them, I think it really comes back to one of the, the most difficult parts of recovering from, from disordered eating is choosing to take unpredictable action. Um, mm. I think that's the most succinct way that I know, like how to, what to, to boil it down to, because familiarity feels safe, mm, but yeah, just because something feels safe or feels comfortable, it doesn't mean it's actually safe or beneficial. That is such a huge lie from the enemy. Like, but, but our brain, you know, we want to default to, you know, if we, <laughs> It's making me, and this is going to come back to my English roots. My mom is a retired English teacher. And, um, and it makes me think as I'm walking through this, there's that poem called like the, the road, the road, not traveled or the road less taken or something. I'm going to, I'm going to butcher it. The road Um, less traveled, I think. The road less traveled. Yeah. And it's essentially talking about how, um, like this, this person is, you know, kind of like walking through the woods and there's this path that has obviously been traveled a lot. That's more worn down. You can kind of see the dirt more. You can see where you're going. And then there's this other path that you can, you can kind of see it, but you can't see very far. There's a lot of, you know, limbs and brush. And, 
Um, and so this, this poem basically, spoiler alert, ends with saying, like, I chose to take the road less traveled or the path less traveled. Um, and it has made all the difference. That's like the last line of the poem. It's made all the difference. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and I think the heart that, that part of choosing to take unpredictable action, choosing what's not familiar or what's not known is the bravest and hardest thing that you can do because your brain is going to want to, and the enemy is going to try to tell you like, do what you can predict. Do like, if you know two plus two equals four every time, <laughs> then, then then do this thing that you already know the answer to or, or know what, what to expect. And so, um, I think that's just one of the things I hear so much is, well, Brittany, like if I do this, I don't know what to expect. I'm so scared to do this because it's unfamiliar. And the encouragement that I would give with that is it, it takes like everything that is familiar now was at one point unfamiliar because Mm -hmm. you have to do something in order for it to become predictable, right? Like if I, if I'm baking cookies I can kind of predict that, you know, if they're in the oven for more than like nine or 10 minutes, they're going to start getting a little dry, right? Or crunchy. Or, um, you know, if I only put them in for four or five minutes, they're probably still going to be gooey. And I only know that because maybe I did a recipe once, but I've done it. I've baked cookies enough times that I kind of know what to expect and how to get them the way that I like them. And so when you can do something over and over again, and this is where you know, again, the persistence kind of has to come in is rather than focusing on like motivation, because if you let motivation be your driving factor, you're going to, it's going to be a long road because there's going to be days and moments during the day where you're just like, I don't feel like doing it or I don't have the motivation for it. And, and that's okay. It doesn't have to be there all the time. So we've got to put systems in place and accountability and support in place to help you choose those recovery focused actions when it doesn't feel safe and when you don't feel like it or when it does feel scary because doing them over and over again is what makes it feel less scary, right? Like when you were a kid, if you were afraid of the dark, it probably took being in the dark several times before you realized like, okay, everything's still the same as when the light's on. And so, um, so yeah, that would, that would be my encouragement. Like do the scary thing while it's still scary and make sure that you have accountability and support in place to help you, to help you navigate the unfamiliar. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's really good because so much of eating disorder and disordered eating recovery is repetition of Mm -hmm. challenging the thought or challenging the behavior or following whatever kind of plan you know, has been set before you. And a lot of times I think it could feel mundane (laughs) because we're like, is this really making a difference? Like, do I really need to do this? And I think what you're getting at too is, is we build, we build up this threshold for being able to tolerate discomfort. And, And it gets to the point where it's less and less uncomfortable. So if you are terrified to eat breakfast and you eat breakfast the first time you realize that you've survived it was probably uncomfortable you probably had a spike in anxiety like during it and maybe even after but eventually it passes and you're okay and so you keep doing that and you build up this ability to tolerate that discomfort and then eventually the discomfort kind of subsides and so that is a lot of the recovery process. Um, yeah. It's not very 
fancy or glamorous sometimes, but it really does it really does make a difference. Like I can even remember back when I was working at the treatment center and we had <clears throat> we had meal support and um I remember working there because of course I was fresh out of the internship and so I still had my own kind of hang-ups around certain types of foods and I remember we had once a week we would get a meal from a restaurant and it would be like the challenge meal and I remember even for myself initially having that meal was like a little anxiety provoking because it was foods that as someone who had just did her dietetic internship, I had not been eating as consistently. But each time I did it, it was like, oh, okay. Like, I'm okay. We've survived. And so I think that's such a great, I I really like the phrase unpredictable action. I feel like that is exactly at the crux of kind of what this process feels like a lot of the time. Yeah. And and definitely the 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 I almost said reputation the repetition if I can get my words straight um, is definitely not not the most um, flashy or glamorous part of the recovery process. It's not a glamorous you know process from the beginning, but it's one of those. I think that's the other reason why I'm so passionate about encouraging women to just like find your people. Um, like that's actually what Jenny Allen wrote a book recently called Find Your People. Um, and I've, mm-hmm. I've got to get my hands on it because I'm like, she's she's probably talking about the same thing that I feel like I'm encouraging on a regular basis is like, don't go through this process alone. Um, don't let your own beliefs about what you're capable of or what's possible limit you because <laughs> you've you've got to you've got to have faith that recovery is possible. Right. And that it's not just what's possible for other people. It's, it's also possible for you. And um, mm-hmm. it makes me, it makes me think we had a, a guest pastor at our church recently. Um, and he said, I wrote the quote down because it was so, it was like just one of those, Oh, I have to share this with my clients moments. He said, when the enemy cannot change what we believe about God, his next step is to change what we believe about us. And mm. That to me was so powerful because this, I think it goes back to that head to heart moment. Like you were saying, Alyssa, is that, you know, we, we may know, Hey, God says this about me, or I know God is good. I know God loves me regardless of, you know, what I look like or how I eat or how I move my body or don't, but I don't like it or other people don't like it or, you know, you fill in the blank. And so, um, I, it, I love this. I, I feel like the story of Moses is such a um, a parallel to this because when God called Moses in Exodus to save the Israelites from Egypt, yep. Moses asked asked the Lord, who's like, "Please choose someone else. Like, yeah. I'm not good with words. I'm not capable of this. Take someone else." And he didn't believe that he could do it, but that was actually a huge benefit to him because if he had been overly confident in his abilities or prideful, um, going like, okay, well, I, I'm this very well-spoken man and people respect me and, you know, all this. If that had been the place that he was coming from to try to leave his people out of slavery, he would not have been so reliant on God. But, right, and thank God here, like he questioned his abilities and limitations. So because of that, he had 
to rely on the Lord. He was so much more likely through this whole process to lean on God every step of the way because he was not about to try to do it on his own. And I just, I wanted to just like, amen, that whole process of like that journey for Moses, because the Lord sometimes I think has to talk us out of our, out of the way that we see ourselves, out of like seeing ourselves in such a limited capacity and Mm -hmm. to let us know that he's going to, like, he's going to equip you and you can't rely on your own strength. You've got to rely on him through this process. And that's, that's a huge strength. So it's not to say that the way you see yourself at all, you know, doesn't matter, but knowing, God, I, I question my abilities. I question if this is even possible. You can turn that into a strength by saying, yes, okay, it's not possible on my own, but I'm going to, if I rely on you through the whole way, through this whole process, Lord, like everything is possible through you. And that again, comes back to that taking unpredictable action, because if you don't know what's next, if you haven't done it before, it's going to be unfamiliar, but nothing's unfamiliar to God, which praise praise the Lord for that. (laughs) Yeah. And I guess maybe the last thing you could touch on is, is a little bit more of these limiting beliefs that we have to work through because I feel like the repetition is super critical and the taking unpredictable action. And then almost in tandem, it's like working through this narrative in our brains (laughs) that's constantly telling us that we can't do this or that we are this or we aren't that. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how we work through those limiting beliefs in the context of recovery. And maybe that's in, maybe that's in parallel to this, this repetitive action that we're taking, or maybe one comes after the other. Yeah. So, so with limiting beliefs, um, this is one of the first topics that I go through with my clients um, and students Mm -hmm. in my group is we look at core beliefs and that is a core belief is really anything that you believe to be 100% true 100% of the time, okay, that you believe. It doesn't mean you behave that way, but you believe it. And and then we can look at some of those and from that point, identifying which ones of those core beliefs are limiting beliefs, okay? So maybe one of those mm-hmm. core beliefs was, um, I'm always going to be unhappy with my body, right? That From that point, we have to go, okay, a limiting belief is an untrue thought pattern. And it's usually one that's going to make you feel stuck, not going to necessarily mean you're stuck, but it's going to make you feel that way, which usually will prevent you from reaching whatever, you know, your goal is or desired outcome. So I I typically, um, with my clients, I tend to see limiting beliefs really fall into one of four categories. Um, So I'll give you, maybe we could just touch on each of the four super quickly and just do Mm -hmm. like a bird's eye view. Um, But the four categories that I see show up most often is limiting beliefs around worthiness, um, beliefs around capabilities, beliefs, and this is what I started with, control. um, And then the last one is possibilities. And so with, with each of these, these are beliefs that Um, based on whatever the belief is, it's really important to identify these early on because your beliefs are going to lead to, you know, any number of thoughts, right? Most of the thoughts Mm -hmm. you have during the day, you can connect back to some sort of core belief, whether it's, you know, 
quote unquote, if you want to call it positive or negative, right? Um, Those thoughts that you have are typically going to impact your feelings and your emotions throughout the day. And all of those together really impact your perceived identity. And the way that you recognize your identity is going to be a huge impactor on your behaviors or your actions. So when we can come back to the beginning of that process and go back to the beliefs and go, okay, is my Lee, is my limiting belief related to my, um, my worthiness, how I see myself? Is it related to what I feel like I'm capable of? Does it come back to um, something where I feel like I should be in control or is it related to what I believe is possible? And when you can bring it back to that point, Um, and again, this is not always an easy process. This is why I do this, um, with my clients, I walk them through this process, but when you can identify one of those, then it helps you, like, there's some very specific strategies we can use, um, to really combat that belief or to challenge it. Right. Mm -hmm. I'm not always going to assume that the limiting belief is incorrect from the beginning. Right. Most of the time it is, but we're at least going to dive into, okay, well, what's the root issue? behind that limiting belief. And then now how do we, you know, start challenging or maybe even reframing some of those beliefs to really uncover where did they come from and how can we essentially kind of be your own inspector or judge and figure out how do I prove um, that it's not true right? So, or how do I, or, or that it is right. Like mm-hmm. I've had clients that say like, you know, their one of their core beliefs is, you know, Jesus loves me no matter what my body size or shape or whatever. Um, and so that's a belief that they have, but it hasn't sunk in yet. And so that's not a limiting belief, right? It's something mm-hmm. that's really highly valuable for them and it has the potential to help them really grow. But right. they still have to figure out what are those other limiting beliefs that are really preventing that identity in Christ from showing up and from, from you experiencing it throughout the day. So, um, yeah. So when you can come back and identify what type of limiting belief is this, then you can really start getting at the root issue and then how to challenge it. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense because what I do with my clients is similar in, in terms of like, okay, we get started, we build awareness, we learn. Why do you believe? What do you believe? And why do you believe? And mm-hmm. then of course you come up with those strategies that would challenge it. And that's often through repetition, but but yeah, that makes sense. So they're kind of, they're working together. Um, and I think it takes a long time <laughs> to work on overcoming those limiting beliefs. So even if they are our starting point, maybe they're still woven through out the actual process, which I think is what you're saying too. So yeah, that's really yeah. awesome. Yeah. Well, I, I hope that I know that's, again, kind of like the bird's eye view. And I know um, we don't have time today to, to dig into each one. Um, but if anybody, you know, listening does have questions and you're like, hey, I I had this belief about myself. I feel like it really, you know, impacts how I see my worth or whatever it might be. Um, I'm happy to I'm happy to send you guys some additional um, information on that um, or, or answer questions, because um, I think this is looking at, looking at these beliefs can be such a huge, um, impactor, a huge, like, you know, gas on the fire to really, um, really get your recovery fueled and moving in the right direction. Yeah, for sure. So this was really fun. (laughs) Thank you so much (laughs) 
for coming and chatting with me. Is there anything else that we missed? And if not, where can everyone find you? Oh, goodness. I know, Alyssa, I feel like we could kind of, we could keep talking forever. Um, and I know we didn't get a chance to dive probably into everything today, but I think if I just wanted to leave you guys maybe with a piece of encouragement um, or just maybe, maybe even conviction um, is I would just say that it has been my experience with probably hundreds of a couple hundred women, at least at this point, that taking a Christ-centered approach to recovery is the most effective way to achieve complete freedom from Mm -hmm. food-related anxieties, negative body image, all of those things so that you can actually live life without obsessing about how you look or what you eat. Um, and without letting, without letting, you know, the way that you see or relate to food or your body be one of those things that does limit you. Um, and so don't, we, we said this earlier and I know Alyssa, I hear you like saying these same things too, like, please don't go it alone. Um, Mm -hmm. whether it is looking for even like a free Facebook group where you can get some support, um, connecting with people in your area. Sometimes the first step is just letting somebody close to you know that you struggle um, mm-hmm. because shame shame grows in the dark. Um, so bring it to light. You don't have to tell your whole life story or struggle you know, to everyone, but make sure that somebody knows. Um, don't go through the process alone. Get some support, um, whether it's a friend, family, you know, member something like that, or whether maybe it's a, a provider. Um, but yes, that's, that would be my, my encouragement as we wrap up so that you can hopefully have someone else pouring into you, um, in this process and maybe even helping you identify some of those limiting beliefs. Um, and yeah, if you guys want to touch base with me or have questions or even just want to share anything that was helpful for you about, um, our conversation today with, that's this just been so fun. Um, y'all can find me on my website. I've got some um, free resources there. I've got um, an intuitive eating guide from you know a Christ-centered perspective. There's some other podcast episodes and things that might be helpful. Um, that's at brittanybraswellrd.com/resources, um, or you can just find it on the main menu tab on my website at brittanybraswellrd.com, um, or hang out with me over on Instagram. Um, I try to be on there. I enjoy being on there throughout the week and, um, and they're answering direct messages. So you can shoot me a message there at Brittany Braswell RD. Awesome. Thank you so much. And thanks everyone for listening.